0: Hello everybody, welcome to the Juan Galt Show. Today we have a very special guest, Professor Peter St. Onge. He's an economist at Heritage, fellow at Mises, former MBA professor, former bartender, pleb, and he writes articles and makes videos at PeterStOnge.com. He's pretty big on Twitter And uh, we had a really good conversation. We talked about the BRICS gold standard and what might happen there. See if the East is going to go back onto the gold standard. Very interesting possibility that's developing. Uh, It would be definitely uh, world-changing. We discuss uh, some of the consequences and issues around it. Uh, We talked about American politics a bit, in particular the impact and mistakes of the Libertarian Party. He argues that it shouldn't exist at all, and it's a very interesting discussion Uh, since libertarianism has kind of affected American culture to a large degree, but politically speaking, it's kind of a counter indicator. Uh, So that's very interesting. And we talk about El Salvador and the challenges of Bitcoin adoption in El Salvador and whether that will change the bull market or not. And yeah, overall, I thought it was a really good conversation. Really enjoyed this company, and I think you will as well. So without further ado, Professor Peter St. Ange. Peter, how are you doing today? How you guys doing? Very, very good. Uh, very interesting day in the news. I've been seeing you. You've been tweeting out a lot today uh, in terms of the markets. You had a, a, a video today on the drop in manufacturing which is fascinating so maybe we can start there but uh how are you doing is there anything anything in particular you want to get into before we go into the news
1: oh boy there is so much going on for better or for worse uh the hits keep coming but um yeah tons going on uh, of course we've got the uh brick summit coming up soon here we've got lots going on that affects bitcoin that affects the dollar you know, today was, well, today we had new jobs numbers that came out. The headline looked good. I mean, it looked decent on the surface. It was just a little bit of a miss. But once you dig into the numbers, it was just ugly in there. We've basically got full-time jobs that are vanishing, rate right, of maybe a hundred or 200000 a month. Those are being replaced by part-time gigs. That's part-time for, quote, economic reasons, meaning – not part-time work that people chose, but part-time work that people are forced into because companies, uh, you know, don't want to hire anymore. Companies are concerned about the recession that's coming. Uh, the, the U.S. economy is becoming what used to be called a McJobs economy. But, you know, it's basically just DoorDash at this point. By the way, they've got a new rule coming out later this year. It's not finalized yet. The uh, federal government is a is a behemoth. that moves slow. But they've got a new rule coming out that's going to crack down on independent contractors, things like DoorDash, Uber, uh, even potentially, you know, kind of mom and pops doing stuff uh, on the internet like us. So there's there's a lot of bad stuff coming on the horizon, and there's not much uh, that's good in the near term. You know, I always say whenever we talk about the economy that, you know, the sort of day-to-day news is depressing, but of course, you want to keep in mind that the people themselves are always building, right? We build, the government destroys, but, you know, the past 50 years anyway, the government has done nothing but destroy, but the people build. And so, you know, that, that's the reason things aren't quite so bad. So just kind of to remind people that, you know, there is this sort of uh, God in the machine where, you know, the people do, um, try their best to to improve things, to you know, to up their skills, to start businesses, things like that. So I don't know that things are necessarily going to collapse. or are going to eat cat food, uh, but definitely the headlines, you know, the the kinds of numbers that uh, government are reporting recently are looking pretty dire.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, the more I, the more I look at macro and and the local economies and, and, and the kind of policies that the powers that be are pushing the more I think they're literally trying to destroy the economy. It doesn't seem like they really care to, to yeah. enable, you know, a, a good environment for, for prosperity, right? And
1: Yeah, I had an article on that a couple months ago on the Substack that, you know, a lot of that is fiat money, right? So for thousands of years in history, there was this symbiosis between government and the people or the economy, rather, where the government wanted prosperity because that would mean more tax revenue. And so even though the government's a parasite, at least, you know, they, they take some care in trying to ensure that there's jobs and that businesses are doing well enough that they can actually pay taxes. And of course, fiat breaks that. And we saw that during the COVID lockdowns where you know, governments worldwide seem to not have the slightest care about crashing the economy because they didn't need the tax revenue, right? You can kind of imagine an alternative universe without fiat money where COVID would hit and you'd have some junior bureaucrat who would show up, you know, at the emergency meeting and he would say, hey, I got an idea. Let's close down half the economy. Yes, we'll lose half of tax revenue, but that's okay because we can just lay off a bunch of government workers, Right. So he would have been left out of the room. That would have been the end of that guy's career. And of course, that didn't happen. What happened instead is they said, yeah, shut anything down you want, because we'll print it. That's exactly what happened really all across the world, but especially in the West. And, you know, that it's like swinging, swinging a pendulum. Uh, Every swing of it keeps causing this harm. So, you know, now we're dealing with the inflation that's coming out of that then you've got the interest rates to fight the inflation, then you got the banks crashing. I mean, it's just one after the next. These dominoes are falling, all from the original sin that they went with these bonkers lockdowns, and they could only do that because of fiat money.
0: Yeah, it's it's really incredible, and thank God that uh, economics is more of a, a set of laws, in a sense, than than something a set of natural laws than they are human-made laws. So we are seeing a uh, credit crisis, bond crisis in the U.S. We're seeing international players at least pretend to make moves. You know, there is like steps that seem to be being taken to diversify from the U.S. dollar hedge money. And while that's not, you know, it's not necessarily clear how good that's going to be for Americans. You know, I think it's going to be rough, right? It's going <laughs> to be pretty bad for a lot of Latin Americans, too, I think, and a lot of West, Western countries in general. Um the east certainly seems to be diversifying and uh so you know maybe we can get into a little bit of this uh, BRICS story um can you uh maybe introduce us to what do you see in this BRICS alliance in general and then maybe we can zoom into some of the latest policies and announcements
1: Yeah, So it's interesting. Kind of the big picture here is that China wants to uh, divorce itself from the U.S. and set itself as an alternative hegemon and, you know, sort of split the world into like two competing economic blocks. And normally you would think it doesn't have a snowball's chance because the U.S. is so large and dominant. Uh, You know, it's got all the major countries on its side. But in fact, China is making a lot of progress right now. So they've got something like 20 or 30 countries that are applying to join their BRICS anti-dollar block, and that includes countries like Saudi Arabia or Mexico, right? So these were traditionally seen as, you know, among the most solid U.S. allies. Specifically, Saudi Arabia was the linchpin of the petrodollar arrangement. Basically, the U.S. acts as unpaid mercenary for the world, and in exchange. They use our uh, script. And so to see countries like that moving over, you know, already the BRICS group is close to half of world population. It's more than half of the resources, uh, the raw resource. And that's largely because the West is taking itself out with this, you know, with these green policies. Uh, The West is essentially outsourcing all of its dirty work to these other countries. And of course, that's not doing anything for the world environment. But what it is doing is, um, you know, handing uh, a huge amount of economic leverage over to these countries. And these countries, you know, there's sort of a correlation between countries that don't buy the green energy thing and countries that don't like the U.S. And so the U.S. is creating this alternative block where, you know, the, the uh, global manufacturing capacity, uh, the raw materials, everything that you need to really make the economy run is located in, on, the China, on on China side of the table, right? And then meanwhile, the US, it, it is run by such idiots at this point. You know, there, there, there was a line from uh, Larry Summers. He was relaying a conversation he had with an African diplomat. And the diplomat said that when China comes to visit, they bring a checkbook. And when the US comes to visit, they bring a lecture. Okay, so the U.S. parachutes in. They give countries a hard time over their their union policy, over their environmental policy, over their LGBT policy. So the U.S. comes in with demands. Meanwhile, China parachutes in, and China has a gigantic checkbook. So they say, what do you want? It's almost like a menu at a takeout restaurant, right? They say, what do you want? You want an airport? You want a railroad? You want 10,000 condominiums? You tell me, what do you want? And in return what China wants is access to raw materials. Now in a lot of these countries, like in Africa specifically, you've got these fantastic raw materials that are not being used because the countries are dysfunctional, right? So like Angola is sitting on a ton of oil, but until very recently, until China came in and helped them exploit that, it was just sitting there. So it wasn't doing anybody any good. So fundamentally China gets cheap materials. These countries get to actually sell the materials. They weren't selling it for anything before. All right, And China says to them, I don't care what you do domestically. OK, I don't care about the human rights thing. I don't care about environment. I don't care about any of that. So for a lot of these countries, that's quite appealing. Right. They can either deal with China, who rains money on them and buys their stuff with no questions asked, or they can deal with the U.S., where you never know when you're going to get on their bad side. And, you know, some activist back in the U.S. is going to have issues because you don't have enough you know windmills or solar panels and then you're gonna get sanctions on you so the u.s has already threatened that with uganda uh based on their lgbt laws uganda like africa is very socially conservative uh, there's a the vast majority of the world at this point is extremely socially conservative and so you know the, the u.s is kind of pushing them somewhere where they cannot go while China is telling them, I love you just the way you are and here's a fat check. So it is not surprising that China is winning this battle, even though on paper, you know, obviously you would expect the US has a lot more advantages.
0: That's just amazing. It's, ah, it's, it's so sad to see such poor leadership in, in the West. I mean, I, I, I see it everywhere. I think that one of the few kind of shining examples around is basically El Salvador. And Bukele, in my opinion, and you know, and and people criticize him as being a strong man and this and that. And I mean, listen, yeah, he's definitely strong and he's definitely uh, being hard on crime. But like where I'm at, I'm seeing uh, crime rates go up, and I'm sure they're going up in the United States and in Canada and all over Latin America. And people are like, literally, my cab driver last night was telling me, listen, you know, crime is going up and we need a strong man. And he literally said, we need somebody like Bukele because uh, this is ridiculous. We have a socialist. Uh, president here in Colombia, Mr. Petro, and he doesn't seem to give a damn about the people. He's just sort of, you know, handing out uh, favors to his uh, guerrilla friends. And, uh, you know, it's making people kind of uneasy. People want
1: order. Uh, you know, people want uh, to live in a country where old ladies can walk around at night, where kids can go to the park. Uh, people want order. And right now, the Western democracies are largely failing you know we saw this in in france of course u.s cities have been collapsing uh you know we've had almost non-stop riots for about a year there back in 2020 uh protests what was it mostly mostly fiery protests uh you know the the west is failing at the basic uh, sort of the basics of governance and now It can be fixed. There are democracies in the world that function, you know, places like Japan. I was living in Taiwan for about five years. Taiwan is a democracy, but it works very, very well. Uh, I think what happened in the West for the for the most part is that the governing um, mechanics were captured by special interests. So you have government unions, you have bureaucrats that essentially rule themselves. So in the U.S., for example, You know, when when Trump came in, he ran up against a lot of opposition where he couldn't get anything done, right? The the government, it it was like him versus the government. And, of course, in theory, that's not how democracy is supposed to work, right? The theory on democracy is that if the people elect a particular president, then, you know, the rest of the government has to do what he says because he's speaking for the people. So I think in many ways the West has been crucified on – this sort of, you know, whether you call it a deep state or an administrative state, where uh, the, the the people in many ways don't speak, uh, they don't have any influence. And so when you get into that situation, then the government pretty much does what it wants. You know, rather than, let's say, arresting criminals, it will spend the money on pensions or on, you know, some kind of social politicized outreach uh, to appeal to, you know, whatever politicians is uh, raising their budget the government sort of wanders off and does its own things. And of course, governments in general, uh, they don't have strong feedback mechanisms like, you know, it's not like a company where you can just fire people who don't perform. There's, there's really nobody in the government bureaucracy uh, who's watching over, you know, sort of the quality of services. And so once the people drop out like that, then, I mean, they, they really do collapse into third world levels. And, you know, you see this, if you take a city like San Francisco you know, the per capita income in San Francisco is 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 astounding. It's astoundingly high. It is one of the richest cities on earth. There is so much money in San Francisco. And, you know, the amount of money the, the city government collects is astounding. And yet, you know, they, they can't provide basic public safety. Uh, criminals are not taken off the street. The city really looks like a third world country. You know, you can understand if it's some impoverished country that simply doesn't have the means to take care of its city. But at this point in the West, it is so pathetic, their performance, given what their budgets are and how much resources they have. It, I don't think it's quite intentional. I just think that the government mechanism has been captured by those special interests who really don't, they don't much care about the people.
0: Yeah, it sure looks that way. I mean, it, it, it seems like there's this elite corporate alliance with deep state powers and that whatever accountability the public had over the government is very thin and very fickle in the united states and you know i wonder i don't you know it's hard to talk about all the countries at once because obviously it's very complex but um yeah that that does seem to be the trend um there's a lot of different ways we could we could take the conversation from here um i think I'm curious about a chart I tweeted out which kind of counters, let's say, the recession narrative a little bit, you know, at least in the short to medium term. Uh, it's a, uh, a chart of the stock market contrasted to the yield curve, of the, t- the two year and the 10 year yield, um, showing that we can go into this kind of like collapses of the yield curve while the stock market continues to go up. And the stock market is, you know, not necessarily a great reflection of, of, of jobs and, and sort of the everyday income, but at least the market's growing and, and, and companies are, you know, uh, pumping, right? And people have a lot of invested in the stock market. Sure. Do you have any, any yeah. thoughts on that? You know, because the, it seems like that chart, and I, I just tweeted out, hopefully we can put it in the chat in the nest, but the, 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 the scary part comes when the they yield inverts. And I'm not exactly clear on why the yield inverts. So maybe we can expand on that chart a little bit and and see just to see if we can catch the events before they they come, you know.
1: Sure. So yield curve inversion means that investors expect interest rates to come down. Okay, And, And normally that happens when the central bank expects a recession to come. So a yield curve inverting means that the market now widely expects a recession. Typically, is about a 12 to 18 month delay on that, uh, because the yield curve is sort of one of the first uh, signals that a recession is coming. But you know the actual economic numbers that make up a recession. So, example, uh, you know companies laying off workers, uh, cutting prices, cutting production. All those things take longer. So that's what a yield curve is. And it first inverted. I think at this point more than. Uh, Twelve months ago, so you know we should be due based on the yield curve for a pretty serious recession. And one of the biggest, I'm going to say, mysteries in investing has been why the market has been holding up so well. Uh, I've got a, I've actually got a video shot on this. Um, but you know, last year the market was looking like you would typically expect in a recession. So the S and P was down about a third. The Nasdaq was down about a quarter. Those are kind of typical numbers that you would expect typical market reactions to an incoming recession and then starting in December, everything flipped and the market turned back to acting as if it's a boom. so specifically one of the uh, indicators that you look at for an economic boom is growth assets outperforming uh, value assets okay so grow- growth assets are you know things like dot coms or AI or or crypto, <laughs> um, those were doing better, and so that that at the time it got a lot of people scratching their heads. And in fact, if we look at it today, the market is overvalued by about two x relative to historic values. So that's on the Schiller PE. Um, on the Buffett indicator, the market is currently more expensive than about ninety percent of the time. When I say expensive, I mean how much you have to pay for a dollar of profits on a company, which is kind of the standard measure. So this is weird, you know, to be 2x normal and to be above 90%. Well, most of the time the market or the economy is not in a recession, right? So (laughs) by all accounts, even the Fed, you know, uh, the the analysts, the bankers, the yield curve, the Fed, everybody believes that we're going to have a recession. The only debate is whether it's going to be shallow or deep. And yet the market is higher than it is 90% of the time meaning that it's roughly above 100% of the time when there's a recession incoming. So that's been one of the real mysteries. And I think what's happening here is that the pandemic itself, it disturbed so many things that there are a lot of hangovers. Uh, the two biggest hangovers are, number one, savings. Right, So people receive trillions of dollars, and generally just uh, they just saved it. Uh, You know, the the stimulus checks at the time in the U.S. anyway were billed as, you know, helping people who were starving. Uh, But in fact, if you actually look what happened to stimulus checks, they were, you know, they were spent on luxuries, um, generally for the poor and then for the middle and upper class. They were just saved away. So there's trillions of dollars in spending left over. uh, So people can still spend like they could in a boom, even if we're coming into recession, Um, and then, you know, the other thing is that there was pent up demand from the, uh, supply chains being stuck. So a lot of people, instead of buying a new car, right, cars were extremely expensive for a while there. Uh, it was hard, at least in the U S it was hard to get a washing machine or a, uh, you know, or a dishwasher or something. It was, it was almost impossible to get those. You had to pay two, like 50 or a hundred percent above average. So a lot of people stuck with old stuff and just kind of made do. And that, you know, once those supply chains eased up now, now you've got this pent up demand, uh, whether it's building houses, you know, you can get uh, raw materials for the house, you can get windows, you can get refrigerators, uh, or whether it's buying cars, right? Houses and cars are sort of two of the biggest pieces of a typical recession. So you put those together, the assets and the it's called durable goods, and those are muddying the numbers, So and, you know, we've got a third factor, which is a lot of people have dropped out of the workforce Uh, again in the U.S., you know, government benefits were very generous during the lockdowns, Uh, I think because sort of the message went out that the goal here is to convince people to accept the lockdowns. It doesn't really matter how much it costs. So you put those together and these sort of standard economic indicators of a recession, uh, which are jobs, consumer spending and consumer durables. Those are all holding up very well, but I think it's because they're running off fumes left over from uh, from the lockdowns that those were disruptive and, and it, you know, it takes a while for those to work through. So I think given that that the market is confused, uh, it's sort of looking at naive correlations of how these numbers work. Uh, you know, in other words, they're just tracing out, well, you know, if consumer durables are rising, that you know never happens in a recession, so we must not be in a recession. Whereas I think that if they back up and understood more theory, every school of economics, even Keynesians, uh, know that raising interest rates that dramatically is going to set off a recession. Uh, but, you know, very few people in finance, very few people on Wall Street understand anything about economics. Uh, even Ray Dalio, who's, you know, one of the best in terms of theory, and he apparently has never come across Wall economics so I, I i think fundamentally that that's you know that that disconnect where the market is still held up but the economy is getting worse and worse i think that resolves in the direction of the economy ultimately and you know what people are currently calling a rolling recession meaning some numbers good some numbers bad that that ultimately goes off the edge uh, and at that point i think that there's going to be probably a pretty big correction in the market now having said you know one of John Maynard Keynes's only contributions to humanity was the line that the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. So, you, <laughs> it it would not be shocking if the market continued going up from here. But personally, I think it's it's kind of collecting dimes in front of steamrollers to get into the market at this point.
0: Yeah, and one of the very interesting variables that's kind of different here, or at least appears different, is this idea that we are in a parabolic stage of technological innovation where technology is moving so fast that despite uh you know world governments and their collusion with you know corporations and you know their best attempts at stealing as much as they can nevertheless technological innovation is enhancing our productivity beyond that because it's going parabolic so obviously this brings in the topic of AI and you know we're talking about jobs we're talking about uh, manufacturing going down but in particular in the ter- in terms of jobs how do you see this particular technology because one of the one of the components of the stock market continuing to go up is actually most of these techn- these companies are deep into AI and we're in the in the early stages of a full-on AI tech bubble. You know, so we have Microsoft, NVIDIA, um, well, Tesla, obviously, is one of the big ones. And Tesla's had some growth this this quarter. I think it's like up like 100 and something percent this year. So most of the S&P growth is AI FOMO, uh, but there's also the concerns that AI is actually destroying uh, jobs because of its nature so maybe you can uh i'm curious what you th- what you what your thoughts are on that on that tech yeah
1: the 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 whole tech going parabolic so this time is different thing they they roll that out every single boom uh every time there's a boom in the economy they'll, they'll reach out for whatever is local so you know it's plastics or it's railroads or it's uh electricity or it's the internet they uh Last time in 2008, it was China. Okay, every single time they reach for something where they say, my gosh, this time is different. It's, you know, it's going to be up forever. Um, So I'm skeptical of the this time is different arguments. Now, having said, I agree that AI is, it's a very significant technology. It's probably up there with electricity or the internet uh, in terms of what it does to the economy. I think the biggest concern there, so historically when you have really disruptive technologies what it ends up doing is making everybody a lot richer. Like if you take agricultural mechanization in the 19th century, right? So, you know, in the early part of the 1800s, something like 90% of Americans worked as agricultural laborers. And then they were all replaced with machines by the end of the century. So of course they all starved to death, right? And no, because we got a heck of a lot richer. And a big part of getting richer was the agricultural machinery. So, in a well-functioning economy, you don't fear new technology because what it does is makes you richer, and then richer people want more stuff. They want more physical stuff. They want more services. You know, you've got lifestyle coaches and hairdressers and personal, um, you know, trainers. You know, you have all of these. You have nannies. You have personal chefs. You just have this endless amount. Like if if you just sort of imagine, ask yourself. If if they didn't cost anything, okay, or you know if you could pay I don't know what whatever anyway if they didn't cost anything how many people would you hire I I don't know probably five you know I have you know you'd have a butler you'd have a maid you'd have somebody to entertain the kids somebody to keep grandma company okay there's an endless demand for labor and so historically when you've had these really disruptive uh, technologies it makes everybody richer. The metaphor I like is an escalator, okay? So, yes, everybody steps down one step in their jobs, okay? So their old, you know, good job at the factory is gone, and now they have to work, whatever, as a bartender. Okay, and a bartender makes less money. So, yes, everybody steps one down, but the thing is the technology itself is raising wealth so high that bartender pays a lot more than it used to, right? So, for example, a butler in – britain makes a heck of a lot more than a butler in india okay and that's not because butlers in britain are necessarily better at their jobs it's because the 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 overall level of wealth in the society so i'd say normally you don't have to worry about it and that's the logic of a lot of the economists who say you know they sort of dismiss concerns about ai i think what the problem is is you know going back to the dysfunction specifically in western democracies they have made it so difficult. To start a business, that you know, a lot of the small businesses we have are legacy; they're left over from the past. Uh, maybe your father did it, or you know, maybe you yourself have been, whatever, running a restaurant for twenty years, and so you're, you're already there. But the new, the 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 creation of new businesses or new jobs, there's so many barriers to that now. They're regulatory, they're tax. Uh, you've got mandates you know in in the us the number of federal regulations has gone up about tenfold in the past 30 years i mean it's just every single january 1st you 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 never you know they're going to tell you you have to replace the stove in your pizza shop so that it's uh, greener and that's going to cost you fifty thousand. and you know nobody's going to give you money for that you got and then you have to charge customers so much they won't come anymore it's just this, this endless war on business, especially small business. And my concern is that in that context, it's sort of like you have a river of jobs, right? So the old jobs go away, the new jobs come in as technology advances. But in this case, government can become like a dam blocking off that river. And that means that the new jobs don't come, it dries up. So that is my concern. And you know, I think AI is probably going to be very disruptive on jobs. Normally we would say bring it because that means we'd be getting a lot richer, but in this case, uh, I am a bit worried about it.
0: Yeah, one of the very interesting dynamics with AI is that it—you know—people were concerned that it was going to get rid of, uh, let's say, low, uh, let's say, blue-collar jobs, right? But it turns out yeah. that the jobs that it seems to be getting rid of, it's actually white-collar jobs, right? So. You know, in, instead of hiring a lawyer to get an average opinion, uh, hopefully, right, from a lawyer, you could just go to Chagibity, get the average opinion, draft a contract, and then in the final part of the process where you get somebody, you get, a, you pay a lawyer, you know, 10% of what you would have paid them otherwise, and they'll verify, polish, update, and do the work that that's needed. So a lot of, like, a lot of white-collar jobs are getting um, probably, you know... It's hard. I don't want to say destroyed because this is fantastic, you know, especially, you know, it's, it's fantastic in the sense that it's dropping the cost of, you know, access to sophisticated, you know, business, uh, you know, potentially it's, it's, it's dro- dropping it a lot, right? So, you know, on that line of thinking, there's this argument that AI is actually going to be very good for small businesses, assuming again, like the powers that be don't try to steal everything. But, you know, the as a small business, if I can hire two or three software robots to do most of my accounting, most of my legal and most of my even like marketing, um, you know, in a year, let's say, or maybe going forward, that seems pretty good from the small business perspective. Maybe, maybe you have some thoughts on that.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. That's that first scenario I was talking about where it makes everybody richer. So, you know, concretely, even if you have a small firm, you are able to provide a given service a lot cheaper, let's say, you know, 10 cents on the dollar. And you're going to book some of that in profit, but most of it is going to be competed away. And the end result is that the customer is now paying, let's say 11 cents on the dollar. So the customer just got nine X richer. So, (laughs) so for sure. And, and I mean, that's basically the story of technology throughout the ages. Uh, You know, if you consider, I don't know, uh, Uganda versus Japan. So Uganda has a lot less automation, than Japan, right? Uh, and yet Uganda's a lot poorer. Why? Because machines are cheaper than humans. Um, once you, you know, have uh, the opportunity to accumulate capital, once it makes sense to do it, then very rapidly the machines um, outcompete the humans and then everybody gets richer. And indeed, you know, a country like Japan or I think Hong Kong is up to 97% services, something like that. Japan is about 90. Uh, most of the West is about 90 you know, so um, that, that process of automation, making things cheaper, that's largely happened with goods so far, or anyway, it's happened with goods more than with uh, data and sort of abstract services. Uh, but now, right, AI is probably going to bring that over to, good, uh, to, to, to those abstract services. Of course, that would just be an acceleration of what's already been happening with the internet, right? So most of what the internet made cheap uh, was not physical goods. There was a certain amount of, you know, sort of streamlining supply chains and such, but most of the impact on the internet has been making services cheap. And some of that customers get in the form of cheaper stuff, you know, so for example, with the with the uh, lawyer example you gave earlier, you can currently, you know, you can just look up on Quora or something and lawyers have often given answers to questions you want, you can get them um, effectively for free. And then another part of what customers get is just uh, the quantity of stuff, right? So, you know, when I was a kid, if you wanted to watch a TV show, you had three TV channels and you had to pray that one of them was, you know, somewhat interesting to watch. Now, of course, you can go to YouTube and there's more content. There's more content that you love produced per day than you could possibly ever watch. And all of it is uh, free, so, you know, in a sense, I think that a lot of what we're going to see from AI is just stuff that we've already seen uh, from the Internet. And then the key question there is that if governments can stay out of the way, not just stay out of the way mucking with AI itself, but stay out of the way of the rest of the economy, then I think we get a very bright future. Just talking about the economic aspect of AI. Uh, if, on the other hand, governments continue uh, sort of laying burdens on providers, then, um, then I think AI could make things a lot worse.
0: Right. Ah, uh, yeah. Very, very interesting times. Certainly, very interesting times. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about politics in the U.S. Um, you know, you are uh, you work with Heritage and Mises. Um, I believe. You know, I'm honestly not very uh, clear on what Heritage and 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 the Mises Institute do. I mean, I guess their economic sort of. Think tanks of some sort. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about them. Describe what you do with them, and um, then we could probably move into a little bit of like American politics because it'll it should be related.
1: Sure. So Heritage Heritage Foundation is the largest conservative think tank in America. It's actually one of the largest think tanks in the world, and certainly the largest conservative think tank in the world. Uh, economically, you know, conservatives and libertarians tend to see things the same way. Uh, I've I've always identified as a as a libertarian, um, but Heritage uh, from an economics perspective, it is it's very libertarian. So free markets, power to the people, uh, shrink government in size and scope as much as possible. Of course, hard money. So Heritage is pro Bitcoin, not crypto. Bitcoin uh, also pro gold. Uh, Mises is was founded really to honor the economic. Um, philosophy of Ludwig von Mises. So that's Austrian economics. And, you know, I'd say today the maybe the most influential economist there, certainly among the young people at Mises, is probably Rothbard. Uh, He's certainly my favorite economist. And Mises has also been uh, pro-Bitcoin, pro-gold, of course. Uh, And I'd say at least indifferent towards uh, crypto, not I think in general, the both libertarian and conservative movements have not been that excited about non Bitcoin crypto, uh, more or less view it as like a bunch of day traders, like, whatever, it's fine, but it's not really that exciting. Uh, on the other hand, Bitcoin, you know, is it's got a lot of the potential that gold has always had. Uh, I think the feeling is that Bitcoin could could really change the world, and make it a lot better
0: yeah definitely and i mean obviously there's there's very strong alignment there um i've been a libertarian for a long time i've been a libertarian since i was 18 that was uh a good half uh geez uh it's it's a long time ago now and um you know so so i've always i mean i've heard of these names and i've seen let's say i've been surrounded by libertarians for most of my life now and um however I, I, I'm, I was always surprised to see, let's say, that my peers, like my peers would pay lip service to Bitcoin, but not really when it when when I looked around after a bull market, it turns out most of them hadn't really bought into it. Um, and I wondered if like I wonder if you've had a similar experience, you know, like, yes, there's lip service and there's like a, a vocal appreciation. But it seems to me like most libertarians should be absolutely loaded with Bitcoin at this point. They should be all rich. And powerful. And uh, unfortunately, what I see in American politics is, you know, libertarians have cultural power. They have a, let's say, they, they have a, a, a beachhead in the mimetic realm. You know, the, we are living in libertarian memes in many ways, as far as I can tell. But politically speaking, you know, from the libertarian party to, let's say, uh, the actions of government, it doesn't seem like libertarians have a stronghold there. So maybe you can... Like I'm curious, what do you, where, where have we gone wrong? What what are we what are, what are libertarians doing wrong that 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 keeps us from actually helping to steer these this Leviathan? Is that even possible?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest tactical mistake. Uh, this is my personal opinion. Maybe it's controversial, but I think the biggest tactical mistakes that American libertarians have made is the libertarian party. Uh, the U.S. system is extremely difficult for a third party to break into, but it is also extremely easy for a dedicated group of partisans to take over either of the main political parties. Right, so the progressives took over the Democrat Party very easily over the past 15 years. Uh, that's why the Democrat Party went insane. The Republican Party was very easy for Trump. It, really, that was the Tea Party movement. So, I mean, it was very easy for them to take over. The political parties in the U.S. have almost no immune system. I think it's surprising to people how easy they are to take over. And so I think if the libertarians would quit with the libertarian party, I I almost wonder if some billionaire is funding it to sort of lock the libertarians in carbonite like Han Solo in Star Wars, just lock them up so they don't hurt anything and keep them out of the conversation. So what I'd much prefer is – you know hold a big farewell party for the libertarian party close that stupid thing down and libertarian you know the left libertarians can go infiltrate the democrat party the right libertarians can go infiltrate the republicans whatever they like take over one of the existing parties the democrat party is by far the strongest in the US so you know if you're if you're starting from scratch you should definitely take over the democrat <laughs> party for anybody's listening who's interested in taking over a political party but the point is, I think the the tactical errors in the U.S., you know, may, in in a European system, sure. You go with the libertarian uh, party approach. You know, you have your uh, pure platform. Uh, I think it's the free Democrats in Germany who basically go this route. You get eight, 10 percent of the vote and then you try to become a kingmaker. Right. OK. Fine for a European context. In the U.S. context, it's a dumb idea. You are completely you're you're actually handicapping yourself because you are taking your people out of the conversation. You know, when you look at opinion polls, something like 20 or 25% of Americans identify as libertarian, that is comparable to the percent of Americans who identify as progressive and conservative, okay? (laughs) Like libertarians have this self-image that there's only 3% of us and nobody else understands. That is not true. I think um, the Libertarian Party strategy has been completely... Self defeating. Moreover, if you dig into opinion polls, most Democrat voters, they call themselves Democrats or progressives or something, or liberals or something, but they actually, when you dig into their beliefs, they are libertarian. They want the government to stay out of people's lives, whether it's abortion or whatever. The, the, the American people are, I think, culturally libertarian. I think that the Libertarian Party has been a catastrophic marketing approach so i am hopeful um you know there are people trying to do this um but yeah i think that's what largely accounts for it uh as for bitcoin you'd mentioned earlier why so many libertarians are resistant i think a lot of that is simply age you know if you look at opinions on bitcoin uh unfortunately it massively correlates with age uh young people are more open to new ideas you know i think for somebody the the sort of Typical, let's say, 60-year-old who might be open to Bitcoin is probably a gold bug. They probably have been their whole life. And for, you know, it's hard for them to understand how this sort of geeky toy that, you know, it's not based on anything. It's it's somewhere in the clouds. It's hard for them to trust it. And so, you know, I... I I don't know, it's sort of a popular meme within Bitcoin to blame that on Bitcoin, like to say that, you know, Bitcoin itself is hard to understand. I actually don't think it is. I mean, credit cards are also very hard to understand. Most people who use credit cards do not understand how they work. You know, like if you ask somebody who's using a credit card at the grocery store to kind of sketch you out and describe to you how credit cards work, they have no idea. Okay, they just use it because everybody else uses it. And everybody else tells them, yeah, you use it and then they send you a bill at the end of the month and you pay the bill. That's all they need to know. Okay, so why don't people approach Bitcoin with that same, um, you know, mind frame? I think that's simply because they don't see other people using it, right? They see other people using credit cards, they don't see other people using Bitcoin. So I think that what would, you know, part of, uh, I guess, the good things to come for Bitcoin are that as, uh, you know, the longer Bitcoin exists, Right. You get to a point where 30, 40 year olds are now familiar with it. Um, And then, you know, that drives usage and then other people see the usage and they take it up. Uh, But I think structurally, you know, the single biggest handicap, I think, for Bitcoin has just been that it's so hard to use for regular purchases. Uh, Lightning Network, I think, was a big step, but I think it's also somewhat baroque. Um, it's not as easy as using a credit card and until we get to that kind of UX whether it's based on lightning network or some other technology I think that we're not going to see a uh, massive uptake in Bitcoin
0: right Ooh, that's really interesting so I have to ask you about lightning I mean obviously one of the big issues with with Bitcoin adoption is the price volatility uh, from a from a very normy perspective, uh, you know, without understanding, let's say, or caring about self custody and the transparency of the system, and understanding the depths of it, which most of the people here listening probably have a good sense of. Uh, most people look at Bitcoin and they say, "Wow, it went up!" Oh my God, it went down, right? And that that creates an anxiety for them, and 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 I think they don't have the time, you know, very often to dig deep and understand why it's worth it to struggle through the volatility. Um, and so, this question of like, you know, the, the crypto dollar or the, the, the Tether, the, 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 you know, the CVD, the, the USDC type, uh, frankly, CBDC type digital dollars, um, they, um, it, 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 it's a constant question that comes up. And it seems like one of the big applications, one of the killer apps, so to speak, of Bitcoin has actually been the invention of Tether. You know, tether is very, very popular, widely used internationally. You know, the tether corporation printed right. more profits, I believe, this year than, or in Q1 than BlackRock, which you know we were just talking earlier is basically, you know, the fifth pillar of the U.S. government, and so it's it's very impressive. It's very useful. Tether is very useful. It's not perfect. It's certainly centralized. It's certainly Uh, trusted and it's certainly surveilled but it also is digital and it it, it solves a lot of the speed uh, and divisibility issues of of fiat, especially paper fiat. Um, The only question there is what network to use to move it. Um, You know, so there's this internal debate within Bitcoin about whether or not we should put something like the US dollar on top of lightning. Is it good for Bitcoin? Is it bad for Bitcoin? Is it going to... Is is it going to influence the consensus? Uh, Is it are we selling out? Is it brilliant strategy? Um, As a sailor points out, uh, what do you what do you think on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it is um, that day to day payments are important enough to kind of fiddle with the fundamental architecture of Bitcoin. Um, You're living in Colombia, so you're aware that, you know, rich people in Colombia don't hold that many pesos. They hold dollars, right? And they use pesos for month-to-month transactions, but the vast majority of their money is going to be in dollars. And, you know, I think that that's really, that's kind of what Bitcoin has become where, you know, so you don't have, let's say, a Bitcoin credit card in wide use, you know, where uh, the underlying rails are Bitcoin, but you're spending dollars. Okay, that doesn't exist, but guess what? You can do that synthetically, by just keeping your savings in Bitcoin somewhere else, and then keeping your day-to-day transactions in US dollars. And it starts to look like a synthetic credit card. You've just done it by moving your money into different places. And so, you know, I think in a sense, the current structure of Bitcoin, a lot of critics want to say it failed because it's just savings mechanism. But I'd say, no, no, that's, you know, the the Bitcoin community is basically synthetically creating a Bitcoin where it's got You know, Bitcoin rails for the savings and then it's got fiat for the for the day to day small bits. Um, I don't think that's necessarily something to fix. Uh, It's just that, you know, if we're hoping to eventually capture that payment layer, then, you know, yes, we would need some kind of some kind of simpler uh, way to use it. And, you know, rather than, again, fiddling with the sort of fundamentals of Bitcoin, I mean, I would prefer, you know, payment payment amounts are generally pretty small uh the vast majority of money in existence in the world is saved in in long-term savings. It is not in checking accounts. And so I would just as soon, you know, go with some, for example, a Bitcoin backed credit card or something like that. Something that is certainly not philosophically Bitcoiny, but you know, that kind of soaks up the transactional uh sort of payment demand where people want that to be in dollars, right? That's that's why Tether uh, or USDC are so popular, right? If, and you know, this was a big issue in El Salvador as well, that a lot of people came back after a year and they said, wait, why is nobody using Bitcoin? And well, the answer is Bitcoin. It's, it's not at the moment optimized for uh day-to-day transactions. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? People do that sort of synthetic Bitcoin blend. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I just get nervous about um, fiddling with anything at the core of Bitcoin You know, anything that that would uh, increase concentration to simply chase that sort of last five or 10 percent of monetary demand that's made up of payments.
0: Yeah. And I certainly am not suggesting that we should change any kind of fundamental thing in Bitcoin. I think some of the proposals that have been made is like, for example, if you look at, at Strike, they they basically provide the service by using the Lightning right. Network as payment yeah. rails with dollar or USDT exactly. sort of flipping of value on the edges and since it's at the speed of light your spread is very thin, is is very very small right. if 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 any, um so you know that would be like a layer two thing you know I, I think the concerns is like okay yeah. well what if it really works and suddenly we've got. You know billions and billions of dollars let's say 70 percent of the bitcoin volumes have been dollar value moving over lightning so maybe what is that going to do to the lightning network what is that going to do to the incentives to manipulate consensus on bitcoin um i guess those are very technical questions um i don't you know but but i guess that's kind of just clarifying um the issue there
1: right yeah, yeah, I would agree. And, you know, something um, like Strike, I think, is, is, uh, is a great product. Um, I think that over time, also, Bitcoin volatility, it goes down just with wider usage. And, you know, if we consider, for example, that gold, right, so when gold was used as money, it was extraordinarily stable, famously. But since it's been demonetized in the 1970s, there have been periods where gold has doubled or dropped in half in a two or three year period. Uh, now, that's not because gold has a problem, right? <laughs> obviously. That's simply because when something is used as the common money, it is a deep enough market that it doesn't move that much. right? So you know, I think eventually, or because a big part of what we're talking about is sort of cloaking with this uh, fiat overlay. I think a big part of that is simply because Bitcoin is so volatile. If Bitcoin were no longer volatile, then I could see people using it like uh, fiat and they wouldn't need, you know, um, any sort of intermediary or layer on top of it. But I think that will happen, but that's, that's a gradual thing. That kind of takes us back to the, uh, you know, the age of, of, of average people. As Max Planck put it, it's a bit dark, but Max Planck put it, uh, science advances funeral by funeral. And in a sense, uh, Bitcoin advances funeral by funeral. It's hard for people who are older to get their head around Bitcoin uh, I think it's a lot easier for young people. so as that process continues, as time goes by, Bitcoin volatility comes down one by one, you know certain people have different tolerance for volatility, right So a college student might be able to accept ten percent volatility in his money year by year. A elderly pensioner uh may you know only accept a one percent fluctuation. And so as Bitcoin volatility comes down just with more usage, then I could imagine, um, you know, sort of progressively more and more groups feeling that it is low enough volatility that they're willing to use it, um, you know, as a substitute for fiat. But obviously we're not there yet.
0: Yeah, there's this really interesting um, narrative dilemma within Bitcoin, you know, And, and you see it, I think Jack Dorsey with Jack Mahler, they talked about it in their recent podcast where... There's, uh, you know, th- this, this vision of Bitcoin as, uh, as digital gold. And we just talked about why it kind of fits that. You know, it's, it's a very good way to hold your money safely because of the current infrastructure in Bitcoin, which has the best wallets and security in the world. And, and so you can hold great wealth very tightly uh, for a long period of time if you do, your, if you do things right in Bitcoin. And, and so there's this kind of appeal to, to, to frame it as gold. And because it's not uh, used as a, <clears throat> as a unit of account, <clears throat> excuse me, then it doesn't have, it's not easy, it's not as easy to spend it, right? You have to kind of jump through a couple of hoops. And so, uh, you know, but, but Jack Dorsey sort of pointed out he said, well, I think that the adoption. And making it easy to use as payments is actually fundamental to its value which i i also agree with so you we have to both we have to wrestle with this narrative of, of bitcoin as a as as as, uh, as digital gold but we also have to continue to push it as as currency however we have this this yeah. dilemma which is we're, we're 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 competing with the dollar right and el salvador is just such a fantastic example of 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 that because despite despite being a small country um, that uh, has, let's say, very strong leadership, pro-pro Bitcoin leadership, that has uh, in a government that has basically opened the doors to Bitcoin, we see Bitcoin adoption stall in the probably like single digits, maybe like u- like low double-digit sort of usage. If 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 it's that. Uh, because it's competing with the dollar. You know, if, it was, if Bitcoin was competing with, 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 with uh, the Argentinian peso or the Colombian peso directly with that kind of exactly. open doors, I think we'd see something much different. But let's talk about El Salvador because it's a great example. Um, how do you see this playing? I mean, first of all, do you have faith or, or confidence in Bukele? Do you think he will get reelected? Do you think that the safety that is brought to the country will last? And do you see things changing maybe in the Bitcoin bull market or, or how, what, how do you, what are your thoughts on El Salvador?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question because <coughs> since Bukele did the dual legal tender, uh, Bitcoin has more or less been in a winter. And so, you know, if, if Bitcoin uh, got back into a growth phase, then we could actually see quite a bit of uptake. Bukele himself, everything that I've seen about him says that he is enormously popular. Uh, I imagine that, you know, El Salvador has been insecure for so long that I imagine what he's doing with the gangs is, is massively popular. Uh, I'm actually glad to hear that it's influencing other Latin American countries um, to copy that approach. So, I mean, I would be very surprised if he lost the election, assuming it's a fair election. Um, but at the same time, of course, you know, he's got a lot of uh, enemies. You know, he's got a lot of people who wanted him to fail, powerful people. Uh, so, you know, it's hard to say, uh, what gets stirred up in El Salvador, but at the moment uh, from, I mean, I'm, I'm in the U S but from what I see from here, uh, it seems that he's giving people what they've wanted for a very, very long time. Uh, the, you know, I don't know that Bitcoin has necessarily helped them. Uh, I think certainly for the percent of Salvadorians who are into Bitcoin, it's been very exciting. But my guess is most Salvadorians have seen it more or less as, you know, he's got this weird hobby he's into, Um, you know, perhaps they worry about impact on uh, Salvador's um, sovereign finances. But fundamentally, you know, I do think that if Bitcoin, that's all been during this period of low prices of Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin does come roaring back, if the Salvadorian sovereign holdings turn a big profit, then I can imagine that the Salvadorian public will uh, will get excited about the Bitcoin move again.
0: Yeah, you know it's 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 very tough to compete with the dollar. Um, it, it seems to me like the, the 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 dollar will have to weaken while Bitcoin strengthens, and then we're going to be able to see, you know, what kind of adoption El Salvador can can demonstrate in, in Bitcoin, and, and hopefully the startups there will be ready for it, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the dollar, if the dollar suddenly weakens substantially, uh, you know, like, for example, if de-dollarization really takes off and and all these dollars are being flushed back into the U.S. and so the price goes down significantly, i us say 20, 30 percent, that would, it would move people really all over the world into other assets, uh, but you know at that point the first question would be what's happening in the other countries right because the closest substitute to a dollar is a euro or a yen or a canadian dollar or something like that um now having said most of the uh dysfunctions that are happening in the u.s are also happening in the rest of the west certainly not necessarily in japan uh, but they are happening in the west and so most of those other competing currencies would also uh you know probably fall as well. So then at that point, yes, people would start looking at things like gold, bitcoin. Gold, probably the most elegant way to use gold is a, you know, gold-backed credit card where the gold is stored somewhere with some custodian. Uh you have a credit card, so you're spending dollars, um but, you know, you're you're backed by gold. Uh that, you know, mimics uh t- sort of how most people use bitcoin anyway. So if there is a catastrophic collapse in the dollar, if the other currencies also are collapsing as well, both of those being unlikely in the near term, uh, then at that point, people start looking at gold and Bitcoin. And there, you know, the question is, what's our time frame? So if, if there's a great fiat collapse in the next five years, then I suspect the vast majority of people are going to go to gold. You know, again, just because of the age thing. Most people, uh, they're not familiar with Bitcoin. Uh, the whole "is it real" thing makes people nervous. You know, even though the vast majority of gold value is is um, is monetary. In fact, I did a paper on this about a year ago. That you know, if you if you isolate the jewelry demand for dollars, uh, sorry, for gold and the industrial demand for gold, it makes up. I mean, something like like three percent of the value of gold. The rest of gold is a speculative. Uh, <laughs> Uh, bet that gold is going to become money again. So, I mean, really gold and Bitcoin are, are almost identical across the board, right? The fundamental value in Bitcoin is, yes, what it does for you today, but also it's the speculation that Bitcoin will someday be a common money. So, I mean, they're really economically essentially identical, but still uh, people get hung up on the on the physical thing. Uh, so if if the fiat collapse comes in the next five years, I imagine most people would go to gold almost uh, reflexively. Uh, if, on the other hand, fiat has another 20, 30 years to go, then by that point, most people alive will be relatively familiar with Bitcoin and we may just skip the gold phase. Because I think sort of fundamentally on a technical basis, I think Bitcoin is obviously superior to gold. You, you don't need custody. It's not as vulnerable to government. Uh, the transaction costs on gold are astounding. <laughs> you know, famously, when, when France decided to withdraw a bunch of gold from New York, they had to send an aircraft carrier Uh, I mean, it literally costs millions of dollars to transport gold. This is something that, you know, you have to plan it nine months ahead of time. And, uh, you know, (laughs) just, you know, in context of that, the $10 Bitcoin fee is um, is nothing. So, you know, I think fundamentally gold is not as good as Bitcoin. But what it does have is mind share at the moment. And I think over time, Bitcoin gets better on that.
0: Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I mean, and, and especially with this, this story of the BRICS nations uh, trying to establish a gold standard again, uh, which I, I want to ask you about, but uh, you know, we have almost 200 people listening, which is fantastic, guys. And this show, uh, we still got plenty of very interesting top content to cover, so please share the link and pump the show, and uh, thank you so much for being here. I, I hope you're enjoying this conversation. I'm enjoying it greatly. I think it's very interesting. And uh, yeah, there's so much to talk about. Um, so yeah, w- you know, what do you make of this? Do you think, A, do they do you think they can pull it off? B, do you think a gold standard would look different this time around? Or would it be fundamentally the same, you know, kind of big banks protecting big gold and, and then just settling debts you know, digitally, and then very once in a while, an aircraft carrier moving some gold around. Um.
1: <laughs> yeah, the 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 whole gold question with BRICS, I think, is fascinating. Um, the way I like to frame it is that China has two approaches if it's trying to take down the dollar. There's the conventional approach and the nuclear approach. The conventional approach is what it's doing now. So I mentioned earlier, it was basically bribing countries into its. Uh, you know, anti-dollar block, and it does that with development aid, for example. It's got this development bank that, say, African countries can approach to get uh, low-interest loans. Um, But that process is very slow, right? That can take decades. And so the alternative approach is the nuclear one, where they create some sort of standalone BRICS currency. They wouldn't necessarily use the Chinese yuan because, you know, of course, fiat currency that you can counterfeit is very useful to countries. So, you know, China would like to have the yuan be uh, very weak so it can outcompete uh, in exports. So I don't think that they would back the Chinese yuan, but it's possible just as an out-of-the-box solution uh, that they could stand up a BRICS currency, back that with gold. Initially, nobody would believe it right? because the countries involved are not very trustworthy. <laughs> you know, Brazil is famously bad at money. Uh, which is part of the BRICS group, you know, Russia has a lot of issues at the moment, including sanctions. China is not very trusted. So initially, you know, people would laugh, but if they stood up a bank like that and endowed it with enough gold that you know people actually took their BRICS paper and traded it for gold and by gun the thing worked, uh, people would start believing it. And if, you know, up till now Fiat has, especially over the past 50 years since Nixon, Fiat has performed very badly, but it had the benefit that um, you know there weren't many other options. I mean, until Bitcoin existed, your only option to fiat was you know either put it in a security or in real estate or in gold. And all of those have enormous transaction costs, and so if you actually had a gold-backed bricks, to me that would be pretty fascinating. Uh, I think it would not initially, but over you know the first couple of years, it would draw a lot of demand. Uh, away from the dollar, I think that that would massively accelerate de-dollarization, which is already going very fast. But I think that that would really take it to the next level. And so, yeah, that's. Oh, sorry, I have to go and probably about. I might get interrupted here. My daughter <laughs> has issues. Um, but anyway, so that that would be fascinating. Now, if if that were to occur, in terms of how it be structured, yeah, I suspect that you know day to day. Uh, the sort of BRICS-sponsored financial system, uh, I mean, it would look identical to our current financial system. You know, if we go back to the 1960s when we were still on the gold standard, at least for countries to um, to get their gold, the banking system worked essentially the way it does now. Uh, the trick is that, you know, because there was the obligation for uh, central banks to uh, pay out gold, there were constraints on how much countries felt comfortable inflating, right? So you would still probably have fractional reserve banks, but they would be more constrained, right? You would have central bankers who are trying to limit the issue of um, what would essentially be fiat currency, but it would be gold backed fiat currency. They would try to limit that because they don't want the gold reserves to drain away. So, I mean, really, I think the banking system would fundamentally look the same. It would just have these guard rails over on the edge. And day-to-day, the way that people would experience that is just that, you know, the system would look the same. You'd have a BRICS-based banking system, uh, but it would simply have a lot lower inflation. Uh, in fact, I mean, if you go back to the era before the Federal Reserve, so for about 150 years in the U.S., we had essentially no inflation whatsoever. So I don't know if we'll get quite that <laughs> quite that good, uh, but I can't imagine at least us getting back to the kind of inflations that we saw before 1970. So, about half the rate that we've seen since
0: then. Right. Yeah. I mean it certainly would be an improvement if if the powers that be if if, if the spending, you know, powers of government were somewhat limited by again a lack of confidence in fiat and the gold back system, that would certainly be better than today and, and government might actually start to shrink and be a little bit responsible. That's the whole yeah
1: yeah, you know, I was mentioning earlier That's how the much hope. Uh, regulation exploded. And regulation is really a barometer for how big government gets you have the budgets but much more important is the scope like how many things is government trying to control and that just absolutely exploded uh since the u.s went off the last bits of the gold standard wtf 1971 is a great site and he basically catalogs all the ways the world just absolutely fell apart it's amazing when you look at the charts you know you have stuff where there's just this almost perfect inflection point on the Nixon shock where like everything got worse. I mean, divorce, incomes, depression, every single thing on earth got worse. So it's really astounding. I think people uh, underestimate what inflation does. Uh, it really breaks everything.
0: Let me ask you one final question then. Um, CBDCs, every country and their grandmother is talking about CBDC pilot projects. Um, CBDCs give them more control over their the money, they let them, it seems to me like they let them micromanage and defend themselves from bank runs, you know, because they can decide to shut off your ability to spend money on certain things. So they can basically close off the exit gates to banks or, you know, they, they could do things like keep you from buying Bitcoin or gold for that matter, in theory, um, Give us an overview of what you see in terms of CBDCs and how it might actually play out because I think people are very scared, but I actually think it's going to be like any other shitcoin, essentially, part of my language. It's just going to be a, a catastrophe and uh, hopefully it's going to be funny to watch except for the disaster that it'll cause.
1: <laughs> That's the spirit. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, you know, people hate CBDCs. Uh, Every time they ask in public opinion polls, it's something like 80 or 90% opposed. People hate the idea of replacing, say, the U.S. dollar with a surveillance coin that can control you. Uh, But, of course, governments love it because they want that surveillance. They want that control. Uh, The Fed has been floating what they call friction tech, which is the idea that, you know, um, if the bank's failing, they can lock you in. Uh, So they're absolutely interested in doing this. It's being pushed really all over the world, but um, including Washington. And, you know, in many ways, this continues kind of a 50-year process where governments have progressively turned the entire financial system into a surveillance and control uh, panopticon. You know, we saw this with Canada, with the uh, truckers, what was it, two years ago now, where, I mean, really, all of the functions that a CBDC would give you, right, the ability to stop people spending, uh, to control what they spend on, all of these already exist, sadly. Um, But the trick is that a CBDC makes them one heck of a lot easier. So it's just push button, you could use this to redistribute income. Uh, You could do a UBI with it, which I think um, they're certainly going to do when they try to introduce it, because that, you know, that'll get enough votes. Uh, So I think It's guaranteed that countries are going to try to do it unless uh, unless we fight hard. We are trying in Washington uh, at Heritage. Uh, And then in terms of what happens to it, I think that once you have a CBDC, the dollar becomes or fiat currency becomes a lot less attractive to people. Uh, You know, it feels like there's a there's a government uh, agent looking over your shoulder. It also enables massive inflation because of that push button nature. So I think that they will try to impose CBDCs. CBDCs will end up backfiring and making fiat a lot less attractive to people. That then drives them either the currencies that are not doing a CBDC or it drives them towards that gold Bitcoin space. So in the long run, I'm optimistic, but like pretty much everything in the economy these days, I think that we've got a rough patch between now and then.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I certainly... I certainly would be trying to sell the CBDC, but uh, and buy whatever I can. But, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been much. a great conversation.
1: Yeah, of course.
0: Thanks. Yeah, for and you. Uh, awesome. Anytime. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is the kind of conversation that I love having, uh, talking to people at the edges of various industries and parts of society, You know, be it academia or technology or culture. There's a lot more to come. We've got a, a bunch of interviews lined up. We've talked to Tone Vase. Uh, Peter Rousseau is coming on the show very soon. We have Zvetsky, who's going to be talking about AI. And a ton of other interviews discussing various dimensions of life and you know to some degree how Bitcoin affects that but also just how to navigate the complexity of today's world so I'm really enjoying these conversations I hope you will join us on their live spaces that we host every week usually either Friday Saturday or Sunday depending on our guest availability um, and then we eventually publish here at huangal.com so either way, stay tuned. However, you can be it on Twitter uh, at Juan S. Galt or at Bitcoin News C-O-M uh, Twitter handle or here at JuanGalt.com. Just subscribe and you'll get a notification when the podcast is live. All right. Thank you all and see you on the next one.